2: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
3: Welcome to the next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Keith Phipps here with
4: Tasha Robinson. Scott Tobias. Rachel Handler
3: and behind-the-scenes producer Genevieve Kosky. Hi, Genevieve. We're all firm believers in the idea that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a recent release. This week's episode takes us to the planet Mars. Twice. Tasha. My Jeddak. Can you give us a lowdown on this week's movie pairing?
1: As you wish, my Dotar Sajat. <laughs> January is a famously dry month for the movies, so while we could have themed an entire episode around Dirty Grandpa, instead we decided to look at our Oscar's watch list. We pulled out The Martian, a Ridley Scott directed hit that's one of this year's eighth best picture nominees. It's also recently been released to Blu-ray, DVD, and video-and-demand services, so it's widely available. We didn't dig that far into the past to find our second movie set on Mars, although it would be tough to find one that offers a sharper contrast. Released in March 2012, John Carter featured Pixar stalwart Andrew Stanton bringing John Carter of Mars, the second most famous hero from the mind of Tarzan creator Edgar Rice Burroughs, to the big screen after decades of attempts from other filmmakers. Keith, do these movies have anything in common other than Mars?
3: I'd say yes and no. Adapted from Andy Weir's 2011 novel, The Martian is science fiction with an emphasis on science. Astronaut Mark Watney, played here by Matt Damon, gets stranded on Mars and has to use logic and reason to escape. He's challenged at every turn by a hostile environment where human beings were not never meant to survive. John Carter, on the other hand, is pure fantasy. It follows the titular Civil War veteran played by Friday Night Lights star Taylor Kitsch as he's unexpectedly transported from Earth to Mars and in the process gains superpowers. But both films concern heroes thrown into strange situations that they conquer by drawing on a strain of American stick that refuses to accept defeat, whether they're facing a food shortage or terrifying four-armed apes. In the first half of the episode, we'll look at John Carter and share some feedback related to recent episodes. In the second, appearing later in the week, we'll turn our attention to The Martian and ask, who wore Mars best? Or something like that. <laughs> uh, finally, we're off our recommendations for your next picture show. But first, let's all say this together. Ach-oh-hom. Um okay, please fire two. Who is that? I've met Virginia! Say your pardon,
2: If you can't stand behind me, this might get dangerous. <laughs>
3: Get behind you. So, how did John Carter transform from a movie that everybody wanted to make to a movie that virtually no one wanted to see? And will that be its ultimate fate? Or does it have a future as a cult film, like other big budget financial disappointments like Tron and Blade Runner? Less than four years out from its release, this last question might be best filed under Too Soon to Tell. So, let's talk about that first question and whether John Carter met an appropriate fate. I'm going to argue it did not, with some caveats. First, this is a far from perfect movie, and one that makes itself too easy to give up on, especially in the early scenes. The confusing opening forces viewers to shift from Mars back to Earth, and then from one timeline to another, then back to Mars. It also introduces a whole hierarchy of Martian life that is hard to keep track of. But those who stick with it will be rewarded, and a smoother-running version of John Carter would risk being less true to Burroughs' creation. And honoring the source material clearly matters to Stanton and his co-screenwriters, Mark Andrews, another Pixar creator, and Michael Chabon, a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist who has long championed the virtues of the sort of early 20th century pulp fiction that made Burroughs famous. So we get Burroughs complicated Martian or Bursumian mythology with its Tharks and its Cerns translated it to the big screen more or less intact. Stanton had the advantage of drawing on CGI technology that wasn't available to other filmmakers just a few years earlier. Bob Clampett, the animator, tried to do a version that would have even predated Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs as the first animated feature film. That didn't happen. This century, directors Robert Rodriguez, John Favreau, and Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow's Cary Conran all took cracks at it before it went to Stanton, a longtime John Carter fan. And Stanton makes sense, because after a certain point, John Carter is as much an animated film as it is a live-action one. And for me, it's in these later sections that the film really comes to life. The film's release was, in theory at least, perfectly timed in other ways as well. John Carter hit theaters almost exactly 100 years after the All-Story magazine published the first serialized chunk of what would become the first John Carter novel, A Princess of Mars. In that 100 years, the Carter stories have influenced virtually every branch of fantastic literature, from superhero stories to Star Trek to Star Wars to Avatar, which by James Cameron's own admission was basically a John Carter tale at heart. Turning it into a big screen adventure was simply completing a circle. And I think Burroughs would have recognized this Mars as his own. Yet that's also... part of the problem. As fun as it is to see this world brought to the screen, I think the best parts of John Carter are those that try to dig beneath the surface of Burroughs' creation. I'm talking about the combat scene that flashes back to Carter's own wartime experiences and the loss he's sustained as part of the Civil War. Or Lynn Collins' characterization of Dejah Thoris, which reveals an appropriately 21st century feistiness and independence. That's not even mentioning some of the unfortunate elements that survived. Burroughs was a fan of eugenics, and as in Tarzan's Africa, there's a sense here that Carter triumphs in in part because it's the fate of superior breeding to overcome savage brutes and decadent tricksters. So we're left with a misshapen, largely unloved film, but one I think is still too interesting to ignore. Stan's love of the material is too evident, and the world too rich, and the images too striking. Let me conclude with this question Is anyone with me? Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> sort of.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you, but even you have mixed feelings about this. I, film. I have
3: mixed feelings about it. I mean, I've, I have affection for this movie. Uh, like I said, I, I think the second half it won me over in a way the first half I was ready to give up on it, and that was my experience. The first time watching this on the big screen, and, and most recently watching it on my iPad, it's like, <laughs> wait, wait, w- what did I sign on for again? But by the end, I was I was enjoying it again. So that was that was kind of my take on it. Rachel, you, what was yours?
4: Well, I had really low expectations for this movie. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, this isn't really my genre that I would prefer. And you guys, when we talked about it uh, a few weeks ago, there was a sort of consensus that i wouldn't enjoy it um but i was actually really i think what saved it for me was deja thoris her characterization i was really surprised i thought it was going to be some kind of you know like low-key misogynist film like a lot of action slash sci-fi films are but she was really surprising and you know her tone was really perfect i thought it was she she was the one who really seemed to get what was going on tonally i think taylor kitsch took it all a little too seriously for my liking but yeah i mean i was by the end i was like okay john carter
3: i liked her a lot i I think it's kind of a shame that you know this film's uh financial problems have have kind of have not you know we haven't seen her much since then she's from texas if you can believe that apparently like she's Hmm. convincing people on the set that she was uh british because she got the accent (laughs) so so right but uh yeah yeah.
1: this didn't do much for taylor kitch's career either i mean this was the
3: same summer as, as battleship and savages i believe yeah so, battleship
0: was the really tough one for him but yeah th- th- these two really knocked him out. And I, I kind of i mean I, as those much as the, i really like him it. in friday night lights he doesn't really carry this film very well um and no. I, it, it's a very han solo type of character which i guess uh, as you say a lot of that star wars and a lot of the, those types of heroes are rooted in, in in burroughs but uh yeah he doesn't really it, it's a big problem and i think that i think that the two big problems with the movie are him and, you know, the fact that it maybe does feel inclined to stick to the source material when it comes to the beginning of that movie. Because good Lord, does it take forever <laughs> to get into this thing. <laughs> I mean, consider, like, we start with a confusing explanation of the fight between Zodanga and Helium. Okay. Yeah, right. off right okay. There. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And their <laughs> leaders, uh, Thardos and Sabthan. Um, and then and then we get a glimpse of some weapon that will give Zodanga control over the planet. Then we go from there to a framing story, a second framing story, with Edgar Burroughs learning about his dead uncle uh, through his diary. And then we get to Carter's story. But the thing is, we only get to Mars then. We have to go to the Old West. Uh-huh. And then finally we get to Mars. And it's just like, oh, man. You know I mean there's a lot of action there, but it's very confusing i don't think I don't think any of it is told clearly and, and ultimately i think it's a case where you just have to kill the source material you have to, you know and streamline and maybe that streamlining process would make it not a, a movie worth doing but it would certainly make it a more successful movie in terms of it, it would flow better i mean I, not to say again i'm not going to tell these filmmakers what to do but i'm just saying the way it is it, it takes it's, it takes a huge effort to get into the into the movie and it really shouldn't
3: yeah i read a couple articles about standing going into this and and there is sort of a huge change in mindset coming from pixar which is where he his reputation there is the guy who will not let a story rest until it is hammered out, and you know it's just sort of relentless in his in his his critiques of stories that are put together. He's like that's that's his job there. And they also had the benefit of just be, being able to not really start until things are perfect. And that's that, it is a transition into the live action. You know, you don't really get that. You can also with with Pixar you, and they have many times. Thrown out huge chunks and started over again, mm-hmm. which you can't really do with a live-action film like this, where you have to do pre-production. If nothing else, you have to start building sets and costumes and stuff like, you know, months and months in advance. So there's sort of, I think there was sort of a learning curve that kind of got the better of him in some in some senses, because, you know, for a guy who is story first. The the story doesn't really kick in until about halfway through the movie.
0: I know? mean, it's a big gamble. It's a gamble that thinks that audience is gonna is gonna conduct to, to it and follow it through. And if you've been living with the story for a long time, all of this mythology is clearer to you than it's going to be to an audience that you're trying to communicate it to. So so maybe that was part of the problem as well.
3: And the part of the problem also is like people will read John Carter now, but it's a much you know he's always. Burroughs' second most famous creation and almost more inter- interesting from what it influenced. And, you know. I'm not sure there's a lively readership for these books now that's going to come into it knowing, oh, look, there's Woola you know, I I, but Willa. I, but I think uh, there's I that, <laughs> there must be that.
1: Really? Uh, willow was uh, so my least you? favorite thing about the, Oh my God. I usually
4: hate dogs in movies. I like <gasps> cutesy dogs. I'm trying to be dog? cutesy. Oh I
1: God. Here. Can. Are we going to have the pug thrown out again? You know how I feel about, about pugs, bulldogs and, and other dogs that look like they had their faces cut off and then like loosely stitched uh, back I together. A, I have a pug. <laughs> I know you have a pug. We've had this conversation before. I know, but yeah, don't, don't talk smack about my dog. <laughs> um, uh, Guys. So the dog does live through the film so that's a very important part of the dog I want to loop back to uh, something that Scott said that uh, stuck with me because I disagree with it so heartily and you know how I feel about disagreeing with Scott saying that uh, Taylor Kitsch's character that John Carter is a Han Solo character Mm -hmm. I I don't think that's true at all I I think the whole idea behind Han Solo is that he's like he's good at heart but he's kind of this you know swaggering selfish guy who's you know so he's not as, he's not as competent as he thinks, uh, but, you know, he's got a an image of himself in his mind that he's trying to live up to. John Carter, on the other hand, is an incredibly earnest man. He's incredibly sincere. And the whole film is about this arc that he undergoes where he starts off in this place of, I, you know, I have been beaten down by life. I'm a man without a code. I am a man without a cause. Living for causes just destroys your life people are awful combat is awful like none of this is stuff that I want to be involved with and he returns to that over and over and over the script is just pummeling about it and kind of like Han Solo he finds his cause in the end but he just he approaches it from such a different angle such a different angle of, of earnestness and sincerity and strong belief whereas you know uh, Han Solo comes across as like the, the guy who doesn't quite believe in anything no I don't fight for anyone.
2: Virginia, reject this honor, <clears throat> and I cannot guarantee the safety of your red girl. I am. Dotar
0: tar so Okay, yes, no, no, no. That, that he is, they're, they're, well, I mean, okay. You know, these are two characters who are out for themselves, who who are not committed to any, who have no higher allegiance. They're reluctant heroes. I mean, John, John Carter is a Confederate hero with no interest in the Confederacy or in being a hero. The arc for both characters in both films is about just getting them engaged in the fight for cosmic justice. And I, I think there's kind of a, a, a rebel aspect to both both characters. I think, that, I think they're very, very similar. I don't really see... A huge amount of light between them.
1: That's what they really should have this, called this film: Cosmic Justice. That would have. <laughs> everybody goes on and on about how the the title was what killed the film, which I just find incredible. That's silly, but uh, you know, that's if that kind of a dumb title, though. Eh, it's kind of a boring title, but right. whatever. You know, Cosmic Justice would have packed
2: <laughs> in the door. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. John Carter.
0: The name John Carter did not kill the movie. I don't
3: think it was John Carter of Mars, and, and the right. changeiant was a concession because of the fear that that women would be turned off by having of Mars and it and then also Mars Needs Moms. It just flopped. So there's sort of like me, you know, in the typical Hollywood because way. Women are like, from Venus? Well, yeah. There's also the typical Hollywood thing like, well, the last thing with Mars in the title flopped. So obviously it was oh, the title, you know? So <laughs> how people don't up, like Mars anymore. How
1: did we end up with the title The Martian and not they didn't just leave it at, at the because they yeah. thought that would be like the most accessible and I, wouldn't turn anybody off. Yeah,
3: it's silliness.
1: I can see how John Carter and Han Solo have very similar arcs in terms of finding a cause. I I just think that they're radically different characters, and I think that this movie might have been more enjoyable and more accessible if he'd been a little bit less of a stiff, basically. Well, if it been a that's little. That's Taylor Kitsch's yeah. problem,
0: I think. I don't think it's. I don't actually think it's a difference in terms of characters. I think it's a difference in terms of just sheer. You know charisma and the ability to, to to carry a film like this. I think it is a he is a he's a very boring actor in this film, <laughs> yeah. and and it and it, and it it hurts it hurts
3: the movie. I saw that more the second time around yeah. than I did the first time, and I I always saw him sort of like neither negative nor positive, and and I can see I was I was kind of think who might be better in this role, who could kind of convey a little more personality, I guess is the right thing it's, it's yeah tough. but the
1: question is who's got more personality and looks this good in like a couple of rags and a, a belt because yeah. yeah. this movie really is kind of starring Taylor, Taylor I almost said Taylor Swift uh, <laughs>
4: that would Taylor be an Kitch's interesting
1: Kitch's abs movie. no well, how are her abs I don't know great. I've never them out she, I
4: think how, great. how does
1: she look in a <laughs>
4: in a like <laughs> in half a couple so of pieces of
1: leather yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a good I'll point back to you. When, when we get when we get to uh, who wore Mars better we definitely <laughs> have to refer to that as like the leather sarong <laughs> so you yes. know, one of the greatest scenes in the movie is where the Tharks grab his arms and just, like, shove him into this, like, He-Man uh, leather cross brace thing. Yeah. They're just like, this is what you need to be wearing. It's like... <laughs> alien, this is all you have. <laughs> alien green four-armed Tom and Lorenzo. Just like, this <laughs> is what you need for the red carpet is right. <laughs> a couple of leather bandoliers. Yeah. And a whole bunch of other stuff that he immediately takes off. The style <laughs> in this film is very odd. What, yes. I mean, wh-
0: who, who are we looking for, in dream casting-wise, for beefy charisma these days? <laughs> oh, Chris Pratt is kind of a kind of yes, go-to. Yeah. People named yeah. Chris, yeah. Well,
3: and, and
4: Any of the Chrises, yeah. <laughs> That's right.
3: Kenzworth Kardashian, Shane Tatum actually would have been pretty good I yeah. oh yeah oh he would have been perfect yeah. no he's, he's the got the swagger yeah. yeah
1: he's also he just comes across especially these days as a, like a dude that has a sense of humor about yeah. walking around wearing nearly nothing yeah, Chris yeah. Pratt
0: would have been great too that, those, those two would have carried the film just it would have been they would have been different films
1: <laughs> could, could we have both of them could we have Chris Pratt in the Dejah Thoris role because that Ooh. also would be a very different movie oh my god I would love that movie. all of the women who were previously turned off by Mars being in the title would have flocked <laughs> back in the door a gay love
4: story on Mars. That's what they could have called it. <laughs> <And then laughs> John Carter and yeah. his gay lover of Mars.
1: This is such a better movie already. It really is. They
4: should hire
1: us. But I mean, it, it, sort of uh, trying to loop back to actually talking about this film, I, I, <laughs> I, I thought that even if t- Taylor Kitsch, even if you can stomach Taylor Kitsch in the role, the romance between him and Lynn Collins, I thought was one of the most dull parts of the films, just in general. I mean, you know, you've got this very classic you know, she's a maiden in distress and the fact that they put that sequence in where he's like, I'm here to protect you, maiden in distress, and she's like whatever, get out of my way and give me my sword back like, it's a really nice sop to kind of a modern, would like to see women rescuing themselves would like to see them have some agency but pretty much five minutes after that she's back to being a damsel in distress for most of the rest of the movie. and
4: And it bothers me me too because she's he has all of these lofty aspirations for science and then she just marries him within like a day is it a day and i just thought that was absurd that really struck yeah, it, me
3: it's i think a case of the source material kind of rege- rejecting the <laughs> the, the, uh, the the organs that have been grafted onto right. it yeah ways, and that's you know? that's something i want to get into
1: in the in the forum is uh source material so i don't i don't want to exhaust that one but the, yeah there is a degree to which she's about eight different characters in mm. this movie and uh only a couple of them are interesting, and not not many of them go very well with what he's what he's performing.
3: So I want to loop back to why this movie perhaps did not catch on, but I also want to I don't want to just accentuate the negative here. Let's talk about what. Yeah, we I think did, we kind like of did like about
0: it. I think we all kind of liked it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <doesn't laughs> it doesn't sound like it, but
3: a lot of it is the production design, and, and and the way after a while, this world kind of kind of is really kind of quite immersive, and there's. So much work that has gone into making you know this world come to life, and its and its inhabitants, and you know I like Woola, I like the I think the Tharks are. But cool. you love dogs, yeah. Well, that's true, but uh, I think that the, the the Tharks are are really well realized. I enjoyed the the White Ape. I enjoyed that sequence quite a lot, and it always it just makes me a little sad that these are really remarkable creations that made by incredibly creative people that. Just kind of like you know a lot of films they 'll have a second life you know action figures and t shirts and and you can see like these wonderful designs for Star Wars live on forever and and these won 't you know these yeah. will uh these were are, are seen by the few people that are seeing this movie and and um will kind of disappear and I think that 's kind of a shame because i I, I do feel like it 's a nicely realized world
0: yeah i mean that this is like a real swing for the fences uh you know because it 's not an established property i mean Disney has Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars now and Avatar is another one that certainly feels like that. I mean, just to be able to build a world like I mean, that's kind of exciting to to watch on this on this scale because it doesn't happen very often. It's a gamble, and I think it's a calculated risk on Disney's part because this story has been such a source for an influence for all these things that have been successful that they figure, well, if we just return straight to it, it's just going to deliver for us again. But I think it's it's and you can see. You know that it's almost just a you know a recasting of the lead and a and a rewrite maybe away from being what it wants to be like mm-hmm. it's not that far off from being a successful film um,
1: and maybe a few frame stories being cut
0: right exactly but I'm just saying right I mean you could if you streamline things at the beginning you recast again I don't I I don't like to step in the role of of pretend filmmaker but but I think there I think you can see a good movie the, the potential for something really good there that isn't. Entirely realized, and in that potentially you can kind of kind of groove on that, and you can. in, in there are elements of it, the the dog, which I really enjoy. But, uh, <laughs> but your dogs. The, the dog and the and the and the and the forearmed apes and all these things, um, you know, they, they are. Once you get past that, all those framing stories, and really get on the planet and get into the, all the intrigue that's going on there and all the creatures and different elements of that world. It is immersive and transporting and all those things that you want a science fiction adventure to be. So it's, it's a near miss than I think people give it credit for.
3: I mean, this movie kind of arrived doomed. There was yeah. uh, a lot of negative press around it. It was very expensive, inexperienced director. I mean, knives were kind of out. There's a, there's a vulture article from 2012 after it came out by Claude Bordesser Ackner called the inside story of why John Carter was doomed by its first trailer. The TLDR on that is it's like it's it's a really impressionistic trailer set to a mopey Peter Gabriel arcade fire cover that really didn't make anyone want to see it. But there's also this to me was sort of the most insightful line in that because the Barsoom books were so influential to cinema's greatest sci-fi auteurs. Just about everything in it had already been plundered and reused by other hits. And as a result, the more that was revealed of John Carter, the more derivative it looked, even if its source had originated these ideas. I thought that was really interesting that this has already been kind of kind of uh, mined for parts over the years uh, so much that that it looked like it was imitating its imitators. Do you think there's anything to that that might be part of the problem with the with, uh, public being, being uh, a little cool to this? Because this was a, this was a case where the tracking numbers for it actually dropped closer to release which which meant that the more people knew about it, the less they wanted to see
1: it. I, I think the film's reputation hurt it more than the contents because I think not enough people saw the contents to to make those decisions. I mean, when I watched it, and especially rewatching it, the scene in the arena with the white apes feels so much like the arena scene from Attack of the Clones. The politics, especially with the therns, feels so much like something out of Dune. And the way they behave feels like something out of Dune. And David Lynch's Dune is not a movie that you really want to be uh, following up. So much of this feels like Star Wars. And it kind of has that like Guardians of the, the Galaxy feel of like trying to create a really complicated old world spontaneously all at once. But you know, it doesn't do it as fleetly as Guardians, which obviously came later. But going back and watching it, it's hard not to compare it to that and see sort of that that feeling of we're trying to throw all of these different races and species and politics at you at once. And we're not doing it as as well, or with as much humor. But the big problem here, I think, was Avatar. You know, you mm-hmm. have another story about somebody leaving his own physical body behind in order to transform himself into another physical body, which is placed into the middle of this world full of CGI, uh, like noble savage natives with their own traditions and customs and he's absorbed into their culture and becomes one of them and then he fights for them and he turns out to be the noblest and best savage of them all and like teach them all a thing or two and meanwhile there's this rapacious outside force coming in that wants to destroy everything that's green and kind and good and environmental and like it's it's so close to the same story and it doesn't have as exciting or innovative visuals, and it was more expensive and came with a worse reputation. So, I mean, I think that packaging is all a really big problem.
0: I totally agree, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I felt it, it. definitely felt like deja vu and not a not a good way, um, which is un- unfortunate again, since, since this was supposed to be the the, the, the wellspring ra- rather than rather than the retread. Um, but it was a case too where it, just, it it was so DOA. You know, it felt like the narrative for the film's failure had been written in that just seeing the movie or not seeing the movie was just going to confirm that pre-written narrative, which I, which I hate, which is the thing I hate about yeah, hype culture. Yeah, agreed. I really, uh, really you know, agree. It's like I, I would like to give this movie a chance because it had a lot of talented people behind it, and uh, it's, it can be deflating the way the culture kind of swallows things up before they actually experience them. People so, just so like they oh.
1: sharpen their knives when they smell blood in the water, then when they smell failure, and the glee that people seem to greet the idea of hating this movie with i whenever I see that, it just it it sickens me like if the movie turns out to be terrible if if people see it and word of mouth is that it's terrible that's one thing but i don't know i just saw uh the finest hours and i have kind of mixed feelings on it but overall i liked it and i look online and i see people just like oh, from the trailer this looks terrible this is going to be a wreck everybody's going to hate this movie it's going to make no money and it's like people get so eager to see something fail i don't understand that
0: and this yeah. is not a cynical film. This is an earnest effort. This is a, oh yeah this, for this sure. Is a, this is a, this, they just again a big swing for the fences that that kind of missed. You know, there's so many movies that are done purely for cynical commercial reasons, and and uh, you don't really sense that from this. This is a, this is an earnest effort.
3: The bigger issue here is like with the current state, where there are no medium-sized films. There are little films, and there are huge films. And I think the number of directors who can express themselves artistically on the scale of a blockbuster is very small. I think Brad Bird was able to do that with Mission Impossible 4, less so with Tomorrowland, although you know, I think that film has its virtues, too. I was, Stanton feels like you know, he, maybe this is one shot to prove himself one of those people, and, and you know, he missed, which is too bad, because I think there's some real filmmaking talent here that could, um, I think the, the way he melds live-action animation is really interesting. I think there's some real talent here that I'd love to see him get another chance.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he's had enough of a track record at, at Pixar, or I think he, he'll get one. Plus, he's a dude. <laughs> Dudes get more than one chance.
4: <laughs> it's interesting that you say Tomorrowland, because I was thinking about Tomorrowland while I was watching this, mm-hmm. about how it has very similar problems in that it's you don't get to Tomorrowland until half, more than halfway through the film, and the, it, it was so caught up in its own complex mythology, and you just wanted to be like... Yo, chill out. (laughs) Like, we're sort of with you, but just like, pare it down a little bit, and then we'll we'll really be into it, is how I felt in both movies. Like, I can see where you're coming from. I admire your passion, but have a bit of restraint, and then we'll be with you. So, I I really felt similarly about both of these.
1: When we were back at the A.V. Club, I did a commentary track of the damn column on the, the uh, filmmakers' commentary for this, and you can hear the excitement. It was before, not only before it came out, but really before the reputation developed. It was right after they finished filming, and like Stanton and his producers were convinced that they not only had a huge hit on their hands, that they'd accomplished everything that they wanted mm-hmm. to, and that it was going to be the first in a lengthy line of sequels, that it was going to be this whole franchise, is going to be tons of merchandising you can hear it in their voice how convinced they are that this is a fantastic film that everybody's going to love and like that's particularly that disappointing
3: <laughs> yeah and the rights have since reverted back to the uh, Echo rice bros estate to disney uh, let them let them lapse so if there's any slim chance that there would be a uh, john carter 2 it is now uh, kind of well Let's I do mean, it, guys. It, yeah it doesn't <laughs> need to be on that
1: scale for god's sake like the i feel like you could do this movie in a much smaller way that would not so clearly evoke the digital worlds of Star Wars and both that kind of like manic, crazy, this is for kids energy and that kind of like grandiose special effects scale. I think this would be a lot more interesting as the story of a cavalryman that goes to another planet and like discovers this world that he never knew.
0: I have actually a question for the group. Because I don't know if so I have an answer, but maybe you all do. Uh, what What about Mars in this movie? Like, what is Mars in this, and what what relation does it have with the planet that we know? And how is the idea of Mars evoked in this movie?
1: I mean, it's this bizarro like blend of kind of the cowboys and Indians culture that John Carter came out of. I mean, the Tharks are basically Native Americans. You know, they live off the land. They uh, have a complicated culture of their own. Um, they're very self sufficient. Uh, they're a warrior culture. Um, I mean, they're kind of the Apaches that he just left. And it's that line is drawn very clearly because he speaks the Apache language. He lived among them. It's very clear that he has a large respect for native culture, possibly more so than his own. And then at the same time, you've got this like just completely wackadoo super science thing going on, which one of the things I really want to get into with the Martian is the contrast between Like rigorous, worked through science that makes sense in the Martian and the The ninth ray, ray. whatever the hell that means. I
4: really don't know what that is.
1: Well, there's no reason you should. I was like, am I missing something that sticks? No. It means means magic.
2: When I read our reports on Sad Than's weapon, I knew somehow that idiotic brute had discovered it first.
3: Discovered what?
2: The ninth ray. Unlimited power. Sad
0: fan only uses it for slaughter.
2: But think of what Helium might accomplish with such power. Transform the deserts. Restore the seas. Is this what you saw, Kantos? It's starting to look
3: very close.
2: Give it time. It will work.
1: I mean... Love is the seventh wave and the fifth element. Uh, by the time you get up to the ninth ray I don't right. really know. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, and then there's the spider cave of gold. Oh, yeah. The
1: spider cave, the uh, evil spider cave. I like
0: that, though. I mean, I like having these weird fantastical elements that are mm-hmm. in there. And I guess Mars, just because it isn't Earth, you can just do whatever you want with it. You can, you can ascribe any properties uh, that, you, that you please. But uh, it kind of
3: is Earth, also. We were talking before we started recording about how um, you know it is, it's is—it's Utah, Monument Valley, that kind, that kind of, uh, I don't think it's actually specifically Monument Valley, but it's recognizably that. But it's kind of interesting, like, you know, tented, dressed up uh, version of, of the American West, which is kind of what the, the books are too, in a way. It's sort of like, what if, you know, there were medieval kingdoms and Native Americans and all this stuff on Mars? It's, it, you know, it, it is it's transplanting some familiar elements uh, to, the, to Mars.
1: I mean, it's kind of the thing that you so often see in like comedies about Hollywood, where you see the back lot where you've got like, Inevitably two Roman soldiers wandering around going to one soundstage and like two nuns and two astronauts and then like a whole gaggle of African tribesmen all just sort of crossing paths and it's meant to evoke here's the magic of Hollywood. Okay, so here's the magic of Hollywood where you have cowboys and Indians and people with – magic zappy blue armband. And swords. And swords. You don't
4: even need the swords, but you have them. I don't... (laughs) Well, yeah,
1: that's... I mean, they they have all of the weapons all of the time. Swords and bolos and... Pirate ships, pirate ships that, pirate fly. Ships that fly, fly with with actual feathers on their pretty, pretty wings.
0: But I, it occurs to me now that the look of Mars gives you that easy segue, really, from where John mm-hmm. Carter is right before he t- transfers over. That the the, the worlds are not uh, so dissimilar, at least you know, at least uh, topographically. And and it makes me think too about just like what the what the intended vision was for the opening, which is to, in the structure of it, which would be almost like the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is you know a movie that is just like a Swiss watch you know the (laughs) mechanics of that you know you have that nesting structure and it's it's so crisp yet so it's so complex but it's made to seem so simple and crisp and and smooth and you just don't get that kind of pleasure I guess from from John Carter where you're being transported from one place to another and one timeline to another without seeming kind of confused or seeming like the pace is dragging or something like that it's just it's it's like a high dive of a very high difficulty that kind of lands with a bit of a belly flop
3: so does this have a future, or or sort of a grim kind of uh, all these worlds will be lost, uh, like like tears in the rain? Uh, uh, <laughs> a description is is I. Do you feel like this film has a, a future as a cult film? People, you think people discover it and. and be charmed or, or somewhat charmed by it as we were, or um, or, or this is sort of the last time anyone will mention it, and it'll kind of fade into oblivion <laughs> after we're done with recording this. This is it. We're yeah. we're planting our flag. This is the final John Carter discussion ever. <laughs> well,
4: maybe this podcast will it turn it into a cult film. I you know I just, I just I
1: just don't think so. I think it's destined. I mean avatar so much has been written about how little impact avatar made long term and maybe the sequels will kind of bring it back out to light
3: postponed indefinitely
1: i find out the most i find out the most interesting things recording this podcast because the last news i saw was a couple weeks ago when they said all right here are the definitive dates so i guess maybe he looked at his calendar and realized he had a conflict for that date Well, when and if they ever happen, it's possible that they'll bring the film more to light. But I I just feel like basically from the Phantom Menace onward, I feel like we've entered this world of gigantic visual spectacle blockbusters that are so based around special effects and big action sequences that that's all that people remember and it's all going to be just a kind of a gigantic blur. And it's all still kind of riding the Lord of the Rings wave where, you know, gigantic expensive visual effect driven fantasy is seen as the key to making billions and billions of But so many of the films that followed that wave have just been so forgettable. You know, they're exciting in the moment, but then they all kind of turn into digital mush afterwards. And I, I think that this one is destined to fade visually as the effects age and not be remembered, except maybe as one of the most expensive flops of all time. I'm going to
0: be optimistic about its chances, actually, just given given how I've been surprised at the amount of affection thrown toward films from 20 years ago that I had thought had no chance of uh, surviving. I think it does enough to get you um engaged in the the mythology engaged in, in, in the world of the film i think it might have a shelf life i think that it if tron had a shelf life i mean tron's not a perfect film
3: rocketeer had a shelf life Rocketeer is a, not a perfect
0: film, but a, no, that's a really film. good
1: but one. But when yeah. both of those films were made, there was so little competition from other films. Like, Tron looked like nothing else made mm. at the time, yeah. and it still looks very different from both the films of the era and the films of now. And Rocketeer feels like nothing else of it, It's time. You know, it's just, it's such an exciting and specific throwback. Those are both very specific films in a way that I don't think this one is. Yeah,
0: I don't know. I think this has got a little bit more of a personal touch, which is what. Again, what those two two films had—they're—they're they're, they're blockbusters with a certain amount of heart.
3: I think also, if if anything, it depends on how much it's used as a babysitter. <laughs> you know, there's some some films I thought would be forgotten that are or, or have. Uh, well, t- tell us about your love of Hocus Pocus, Rachel. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, that, that's a movie that came and went, and and then you know, it was it was not you know around from my childhood, but but uh, those who grew up with it or or feel differently about it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So before we move on, does it, anyone, any final thoughts you'd like to share about this film?
1: I mean, was anybody else as uncomfortable as I was with the fact that half of the human cast is essentially in red face? Yes. I mean, I know they're <laughs> it's in the books. They're red people. It's in the script. Repeatedly, they bring up that they're red people. But- For me it felt it constantly fell somewhere between, oh God, they all did really bad spray on tans and nobody noticed that the the color adjustment was Uh off and oh, you're all doing red face for the movies.
3: Yeah, but they're they're not the analogs for the Native American characters. I guess it helps a little. <laughs> it I does. Don't, I, don't. I
1: just, on a on a visual level, I found it.
3: I well, they, they weren't nude as they were in the Burroughs books. So there's at least that, I guess. I that me. to
4: be thankful for. And then the bright I'm blue eyes, for. too. I was like... <laughs>
3: That's yeah that's true. that's
1: very uh, I was like, David Lynch's doing. What Dune. kind of
4: eugenics did, was Bruce <laughs> thinking about here?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think part of it is just they're meant to look different, you know. Right. It's a pulp science fiction fantasy of the time, you know, you wanted that's why Martians have green skin, is to d- distinguish them visually. And I think, you know, red-skinned, blue-eyed people, it was meant to be very, like, visually distinctive. Mm-hmm. But here it just – I mean, it literally, to me, it looks like bad spray tans. No, it
4: does look like – I mean, uh, Dominic West looks insane. I, I mean – kind of <laughs> <laughs>
1: Speaking of Dominic West, where is he in this movie? Like, like he's it, great. I don't know why they don't use him. Is, is there another twenty minutes of this film that ended yeah. up in the cutting room floor where he gets to talk?
3: He's fun, and so is the oh, gonna, I forget the name of the Martian who kind of rushes in to rescue John Carter.
4: Oh, her like hand, Gaden? yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's was a lot of fun too, and, and like, I we, loved him too. We yeah. see more of him in the, in the sequels, I guess.
1: But yeah, but he just kind of comes out of nowhere and is like, he's like, hi, I'm Han Solo. Yes, you're two hours into the movie." But here I am. I yeah. finally showed
3: up. And I know that's a major character in, in the Barsoom stuff. But, but it's been a while since I read *Princess of Mars*. So I uh,
1: you didn't reread the entire
3: Mars series. No, I, no, and, and I was. I find just about everything about Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, really interesting, except for actually reading Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is I find kind of a chore, frankly. So um, yeah,
4: he was really busy know. watching the tomb of his uncle.
3: That's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh. Man. So before closing out the first half of this week's show, we'd like to share some listener feedback, starting with this voicemail with a recommendation of a film I'd never heard of before, inspired by our Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf episode.
2: Hey there, Next Picture Pod. This is Liam Billingham. I'm a big fan. Enjoyed the episode on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Looking forward to the episode on 45 years. I wanted to recommend a film to you guys. You may already know it, but it's called The Ear. It was made in in Czechoslovakia in 1970. Um, It wasn't released until 1989, and the reason I'm recommending it is because it is a film about a couple who is maybe or maybe not unhappily married coming home from a dinner party. Um, The husband is a senior official of the Prague uh, ruling communist regime, and his wife, um, they come home from a party, and they notice that their home has been broken into, and they're being watched and surveilled. And it's a really interesting film that's kind of like matching Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with like a Harold Pinter play. Um, and it has some really interesting point of view shots from the party, and it flashes back and forth in time. It's really, really interesting. I believe it's on Hulu. You should check it out. It would be an interesting counterpoint to Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf.
3: We also received this off-topic but still welcome recommendation from a listener named Gray in North Carolina. Rachel, would you share it with us?
2: Sure.
4: Gray writes, One of my favorite memories concerning the Dissolve's movie of The Week was the week Spirited Away was featured, one of my all-time favorites. I remember Tasha chiming in on the discussion and know the affinity she has for Miyazaki and the sort of late, great Studio Ghibli. Now, with that in mind, G-Kids will be distributing Isao Takahata's highly acclaimed 1991 drama Only Yesterday for American audiences for the first time ever in February. Well, it isn't a new release, technically, I think a show discussing Ghibli history, Miyazaki and Takahata's relationship, as well as the wonderful film in general, will be an excellent subject.
3: Thanks for the recommendation, Gray. Not sure we'll be doing this in the immediate future, but it's a great idea. Tasha, what do you think?
1: Um, I think that possibly nobody else in the room is as into that idea as I am. <laughs> I have to say, I suspect Grey is a bigger fan of Only Yesterday than I am. I It's not one of my favorites from the studio. And Takahata, I've always found a little more elusive than Miyazaki. Like, Miyazaki wears his themes on his sleeve so clearly. I feel like I probably need to sit down and watch Takahata's films back to back and try to get a, a better sense for what he's doing. Because Miyazaki he has always been the one who kind of follows his heart and does these very specific stories about joy and wonder and emotion and takahata's always been the technical experimenter the person who tries something new every time out and i think as a result i have much less of an idea of kind of how that would work in terms of of comparing his films i think it's a really interesting idea but i think it would both mostly be me talking and waving my hands a lot while rachel looks at me with that exact expression <laughs> you should give
4: Grey a call <laughs>
1: We just need to sit down and talk over the phone about how I feel about uh, how I feel about Ghibli.
3: Well, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature a response on a future episode or post it on our website. That wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. On the second half, we'll bring you The Martian. You'll also get to hear this.
4: I felt so much stupider watching John Carter than I did watching The Martian.
3: Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, So you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember, never trust a third. <laughs>